This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the 343 Podcast. My very special guest today is Eric Stover. He's back for the second time on this podcast, and we are discussing his new role in American soccer that has a very European twist to it. Now, if you haven't listened to my first interview with Eric, or if you just want to revisit it, I provided a link to it on 343coaching.com. In that interview, he discussed his pivotal role at New York Red Bull when they first signed Thierry Henry. And we also talked a lot about the turbulent times that NASL and New York Cosmos were going through at that moment, which was around 2017, 2018. And we talked a lot about the drama that was happening in American soccer at that time and is still ongoing for the most part. Uh, Eric was a director with New York Cosmos and is still an acting director there, but he is in a much more limited role right now. Most of his time is focused on this new project, which is growing the presence of European clubs on American soil. And as exciting as that project is, we hardly talked about it in this interview, even though we, we did get to it at the beginning and at the end. But the bulk of our time was actually talking about young American players. And specifically, what ages European clubs are looking to sign players and why and how that ties into American soccer players. We also talked about why our best American players are and should continue leaving for Europe. And we spent some time talking about how the American market is viewed by the rest of the world. Eric is a fountain of knowledge and does not hold back in this interview. And he certainly did not hold back in my first interview that I had with him. Like I said, you can find a link to that in the write-up of this podcast, which is available on 343coaching.com. I've also provided a link to his Twitter profile so you can connect with him and follow his work directly. And if you're listening to this, chances are that you want what's best for American soccer. And if you're an American coach, you should want the best coaching education that is available. To get that, you can join the 343 Premium Coaching Membership Program. It is a simple and powerful online program that teaches you the proven 343 methodology that has produced some of the best players in the U.S. Men's National Team pipeline, like Ulianes, Alex Mendez, Kobe Hernandez-Foster, and more. You also get 24-7 online access to ebooks, audio lessons, recorded classroom presentations, on-field clinics, and members-only forums for networking and sharing ideas with other 343 coaches from around the country. And you get all of that for just $295. No traveling, no waiting period, no red tape. For a fraction of the price of what other coaching education courses cost in this country now, you can get all of the tools that you need to become a better more confident coach. You can learn more about the benefits of the 343 Premium Coaching Membership Program by visiting 343coaching.com. All right, with all that said, let's get into today's episode with Eric Stover. So what's uh what's what's new with you? Last time uh, last time we spoke on the phone, well, last time we spoke on the phone, you kind of hinted at what your next project was going to be. But last time I recorded a conversation with you, you were uh, you're in the process of 
going through all the stuff with NASL and Cosmos and, and right. ultimately the, the ending of, of all of that. And, um, and now you're onto yeah. something new. Yeah. So, um, couple things really still working as i guess acting chief operating officer for the cosmos oh i didn't know that so okay yeah yeah so we had uh, i had gone off to start this other thing which i can explain in a minute but um with rocco buying fiorentina they needed a little help and oversight with the Cosmos and I'd never completely totally left still was assisting from the outside. So I came back in and, um, sort of saw through things through to the end of this year. And, um, now we're trying to figure things out moving forward, what 2020 is going to look like. And then the other thing's been in the works for, several years now. Um, so there's a German sports marketing company called match IQ. We met about four years ago, started talking about, um, opportunities in the United States. And I had pitched them an idea that we are just now rolling out to market, which, uh, was recognizing that super clubs were going to start opening offices in North America and that has happened with Bayern Munich and PSG and Barcelona and a few others. Um, and so there'd be an opportunity there for the clubs that finish top four, top six, um, that have an eye towards uh, being more relevant globally and understanding that uh, the way things operate in North America is very different than the rest of the world. So, um Basically, to, to be an office that's a, an extension of their front office 365 days out of the year for, for everything commercially and sporting. So um, Schalke is our first client. Uh, Herter Berlin signed on, and we've got uh, four or five we're in negotiations with at the moment. And what is the, what is the purpose then of, of having you run, I guess, a, a marketing in the United States? Is that kind of what it is? Well, it's uh, U.S. and Canada for sure. Each club is different, um, and they have different set of goals. For Schalke in particular, they had been um, doing some work here in the U.S. for a few years now, got to understand the uniqueness of it. Um, and they have a particular set of goals that they're, they're looking to accomplish. Um, obviously everybody wants to raise overall club awareness, um, particularly if you're a Bundesliga club and you're fighting to stay close to, to Bayern Munich, who, who has the, the revenue that other clubs maybe do, don't have. Um, and you need to stay close to have a chance to hopefully one day unseat them at the top of the Bundesliga. So um, anything commercially driven to, to help the club um, accomplish that goal we're working on. So it could be sponsorship. Um, it could be media awareness. So helping with uh, traditional and new media. Uh, we help with the English language and the U.S. social media platforms. Um, we do a lot of grassroots activations. We just came off a weekend of five viewing parties at one time for the Derby. 
against Dortmund and, and it was a huge success. And, and I think what's so important about it is paying attention to these things all day, every day that, um, I think a lot of clubs come to the United States, play a couple of friendly games and think that that's market relevant. It, it really isn't. So you got to work on these things all year. And then the other side of it is the sporting side. And, you know, there's a, a huge opportunity for Bundesliga clubs to identify American talent, Canadian talent. We've already seen that. Um, and it's bearing fruit for them whether it's playing for the first team or a player like uh, Christian Pulisic transferring off to Chelsea, um, there, there's commercial opportunities there as well. Yeah, that was, uh, that was going to be my, my next question is, is the teams that are, that are signing on to do this, do they see the potential in the American market because they have American players and they've seen, you know, what a player like Christian can can bring in for them or do for them in a market like this? Well, yeah, I think it goes back to uh, this is the way they operate. Um, if you're in the Bundesliga, if you're a Bundesliga club, you have to develop talent, whether it's homegrown in your own neighborhood or you're identifying players from anywhere around the world. You have to develop talent and you have to, to move them into the first team. You have to give them a chance to succeed um, and they have to prove themselves. And then if they do, they earn a spot on the first team. And, and then hopefully they're a starter and a, ultimately a national team level type of talent. And a club like Schalke has done a tremendous job over the years of developing young talent. And I think what American players that are in that top 1% have recognized is that the opportunities in Germany in particular are much greater than what they are in the United States, um, that the U.S. continues to struggle with developing players from ages 16 to 22, um, and they're going to have a better chance to realize their goals if they get into an organization like Schalke that has a proven track record of developing players like that. Not only not only um, achieving their their sporting goals, but actually uh, understanding their full market potential, I think, is is something that a lot of these players are learning when they leave the United States. It's you, when you compare a player like Weston, I guess, uh, to a player like Paxton. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Weston is is reaching his full market potential, meaning, you know, he's on a team that is sitting at the top or, or near the near the top of one of the most competitive leagues in the entire world. And his player salary and his overall market value or, or transfer value is much, much, much higher than anything that Paxton will probably ever touch. Uh, at this moment, if Paxton stays where he's at, right? So I, I, I just think like the full market potential market value is being understood as well by these players that are, that are leaving. Yeah, uh, no doubt. And it, it's every step along the way, the first agreement you sign is going to be better than something you might get domestically here. Um, You'll have greater flexibility. Uh, I think there's, there's been a lot of discussion about how cumbersome contracts can be for young homegrown players in the United States, particularly in MLS um, and your ability to move and develop 
um, your ability to get into the first team MLS. I don't know what the numbers are like this year, but the last five years, I believe it's the lowest number of minutes for domestic domestic players under the age of 23 um, of any first division in the world. Maybe that's changing. Maybe maybe it's getting getting better. But the trend was pretty clear that if you're a top talent in you know teenager early 20s, you're not necessarily going to get the chance to play. Whereas in foreign leagues, they have to give you the chance to play because it's part of their their commercial operation. Um, and sometimes it works out for a guy sticking with Schalke, you know, like uh, Weston McKenney. And sometimes it doesn't work out. Haji Wright um, played for us at the Cosmos and then um, and then moved on to Schalke. He worked his way through the system, got first team minutes, um, but the club decided ultimately that uh, they weren't going to keep him around. And uh, I think that goes to your point that you find sort of the level that you belong at. Now Haji's in uh, Scandinavia playing, hopefully playing every day. I haven't seen any news recently, but um, that's kind of the level he worked himself to. Uh, Weston is a, is a different case. And what's I think even more interesting about it is, um, there's a greater opportunity if you're an American, uh, I, because I do think a lot of clubs recognize the the potential. I, I think Christian Pulisic's transfer fee was higher than it would have been if maybe he was Croatian, um, like playing for the Croatian national team had grown up in Croatia, um, because I think Chelsea took a bigger chance on him knowing that if it worked out, the upside was even greater because of the U.S. market. So depending on how things go, um, there's a potential to even um, exceed your, your market value, as, as you mentioned earlier. How did, how did you first come into this knowledge or this, this idea that, you, or that a player going to Europe could potentially be something much bigger and much better for them. You mentioned Haji moved from Cosmos to to Schalke, but was there something before that that you that you were aware of or or that you knew, or was Haji your your introduction to that that realm? No, it it goes all the way back to my first real job in this sport in this country. Uh, I was brought into Red Bull to help build the stadium and and um, be part of the management team for Red Bull New York. Uh, and a couple months after taking that position, I was promoted into the managing director spot and taking over a club, basically, that um, I didn't really know much about soccer, being completely honest. And the first thing one of the first things I asked was uh, Jeff Agus. They, they said, what's our, uh, from a sporting point of view, what, what do we need to get better at as a club and as a country? And he pointed to the thing I mentioned earlier, which is developing players from ages 16 to 22. Um, that as a country and as a team, we're very poor at doing that. Um, so that was one of the first lessons I learned uh, looked at how the sport is structured in the United States and how it's structured internationally. It's completely different. There is really 
no infrastructure in the United States that focuses on those that age group. It's getting better. I think at Red Bull, we started a process that now is leading to uh, players like Tyler Adams making it to, to Leipzig and playing regularly in the Bundesliga. And that's a homegrown player. So I think you can point to a team like Red Bull and see how it's done properly. I think Dallas is probably another example. But um, still, when you compare it to the rest of the world, uh, it was pretty clear that um, we weren't doing it right. And so we took that idea to the Cosmos when I went there. Uh, Gio Savarese was the head coach, of course, having played in MLS and played um, several stints around the world. He had a very similar point of view on how you develop talent and uh, he had a lot of experience of coaching young kids in the United States. Uh, so one of the things we wanted to do while bringing in players like Raul and uh, Marco Senna was to also try to develop young players and get them into the first team. Um, and we started to do that. Unfortunately, the, the stuff, the problems with the Cosmos has been well-documented and is ongoing. But Haji was one example of the idea of bringing in young talent, putting them alongside world-class players and pushing them to be better. And we also had Eric Cavillo come in. He's moved on now to San Jose. He's done okay there. Uh, we also brought in Alexis Valella. All three of those guys played on the U-17 World Cup team with Christian Pulisic. So it was very much part of our identity that we were trying to build uh, and and now moving into match IQ and working with clubs is uh, trying to ex explain the opportunity how open it is in the United States um, that there are 330 million people in this country millions of players and um, having grassroots connections is, is pretty critical has has match IQ encountered any interference or any kind of disruption from from doing these things on us on us soil no not at all we're we're not in the player business um and that's not what we do we represent our clubs um commercially in in on the sporting side but we're not scouts um we don't have a, a network of people actively recruiting players but Things come across our desk. We share them with our clubs. Um, we make the connections often for two different parties to talk, but it's not what what we do day in and day out. But sharing that opportunity and, and letting clubs understand that they this is yet another market where they can find players, uh, whether it's the U.S. or Canada or Central America, South America, or the rest of the world, we can help with our existing network to to be just another value added for our clubs. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting to me because there's definitely different um, ways of of operating or or doing business in soccer and and doing business as like a marketing company. There's not really much that can be done to to interfere with with that type of business, right? But if you take the Barcelona Escola example, and, and they're putting, you know, they're putting like soccer schools all over the United States. And then they, they form right. teams and they try to actually put those teams into American, 
leagues, like youth youth uh, competitions. Well, then right. that that's that's different. And and I've heard from some of the guys that are involved with those that they've gotten a lot of pushback, like uh, not wanting to uh, not wanting them to be involved in American soccer from from like an actual sporting perspective, which has been interesting to me. Yeah, I, I think it's a good point. Um, there's a lot to discuss here in this country is what's working and what's not. I think there's a lot on the youth level that's not working. And I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of youth clubs, talk to parents, um, have players come to me asking for, for help on how they get opportunities. Um, and obviously we're not doing as well as we could be doing or should be doing. I think the structure in many ways is all wrong. Um, and because that structure is so fractured and broken, uh, I think you see clubs that are willing to invest and, and try to create a system in the United States that maybe mirrors more of what they do back home. And in this case, you're referencing Barcelona. Um, and then, you know, just take advantage basically of an open market. Um, so the, I can understand people's frustration with that. I think it's risky. It's going to take a long time for something like that to bear fruit, particularly if you're, if you're going to have multiple schools across the country. But the other side of it is there's a lot of talent in this country that is fading away come 14, 15, 16 years old that just simply isn't getting a chance. Uh, and we don't have a system the way we do in other sports like basketball and football uh, where it feeds up to major colleges and then from major colleges uh, into those professional sports. It just doesn't exist seamlessly the way it does uh, globally for, for soccer. So because of that, people are trying to take advantage of it, carve out their own opportunity um, and I, I'm sure that creates waves and frustration on the grassroots level. I wrote down a question as, as you were talking, because I feel like, um, your work with match IQ is on behalf of European teams. And, and you've talked specifically about German teams, Schalke and, and some others. Um, but I, I get like this, this sense that there, there might be a, another reason why you're so interested in, in doing this. And so the question that I wrote down is actually, um, uh, do, do you do what you do to ultimately help American soccer? Is that one of your, you know, personal, uh, personal motivations? Yeah, of course. I, I think it would be great if we had a, a better network and it's starting to happen. Um, but if we had a better, um, system of pathways being set to Europe and, the Bundesliga, I think, is the best example um, of players developing there. I mean, it's very clear we can rattle them all off that are playing regularly in, in the Bundesliga. Uh, but throughout Europe, and uh, we're not the only ones. A lot of people have seen it. Um, I believe his name is Jordan Gardner investing in, um, I think, a Scandinavian second division club to to sign American players ultimately. Uh, I know there's a lot of grassroots levels level of folks talking about facilities and academies that would uh, run it more like a European system. 
Um, and really what we're failing with here is creating the financial incentive. There is no um, training compensation or solidarity payments or transfer fees. Uh, and so there, you don't have the incentive that you do in the rest of the world to develop young players. And if the players don't see a pathway and there's not a financial incentive, it's, it's um, only natural that a large percentage, percentage of them are fading away um, and playing something else. And I think we've heard that from other professional athletes that they loved soccer growing up, but they didn't see the opportunity and they went to play football or basketball or whatever it might be. Um, and that's just a lost opportunity for everybody. And at the end of the day, we see the results with the men's national team. Yeah. And, and on the, on a similar note, you mentioned players not seeing the potential in it, but also clubs, uh, if, if there's no incentive for a club to invest in a player or, 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 uh, even, um, you know, if there's no incentive for a community to invest in a club. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a missed opportunity. That's, you know, potentially, you know, hundreds, thousands of, of, of players lost. If you're looking at, uh, let's see, my examples last night were Alabama and Iowa. I think, you know, those are, those are states, entire states that are, um, not involved in, in professional American soccer. There's no potential for them yeah. to, to rise to the first division. So why would anybody invest in anything there? Exactly. And, and you can see it in more recognizable levels. So we played, we, the New York Cosmos, played in Detroit a few weeks ago in front of 6,000 people for what was a fourth division match, really semi-professional game. And you look at that and you think, this could be happening all over the country. Um, part of the reason it's not, uh, leaving aside the big obvious one without pro-rel and um MLS is stranglehold on the marketplace. Uh, but Detroit should also have a robust academy system and they should be developing their own players and they should be signing them to professional deals. And then they should be moving them on uh, to more lucrative deals. All of that should be happening. And that should be happening in hundreds of markets across the country. And the whole entire sport would be better off for it. But unfortunately, we have the system that we have where there's disincentive across the marketplace. Forget about incentive. You, you're, you're boxed into a corner and told you're not allowed to do things. Now, some of that might be changing. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how it, how it gets rolled out and who's making the decisions and what level of cooperation people are going to have. But there are very few examples of really good young local players being signed to a local professional team and that player working his way up through the system, um, ultimate play, ultimately playing first division minutes in MLS. I mean, it's just not happening at the frequency it needs to happen, particularly when you factor in how large this country is. Uh, so all of that is fundamental grassroots dysfunction that I think really has to change. And without this, without the changes, you're going to see more and more people come into the States trying to figure out a way to start their own business and do it their own way. So here, here's a, a take. I don't hear very many people talking about, um, say, you know, players involved in an MLS uh, development Academy, 
and they play from the time they're 12 to 19, whatever, right? And then the the franchise doesn't see any potential for that player. And, um, you know, at 19 years old, they're, you know, preparing either to go send them off to college or uh, that might be the end of their playing career, right? And right. for... I guess I need to organize this thought a little bit better. If that MLS franchise doesn't see any potential in that player, that is the end of that player's potential of going to MLS for the most part, because another MLS franchise cannot come in and offer that player a contract the way that the, 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 the agreements are all written up. Right. So an example, I guess is if LA didn't see, uh, if LA Galaxy didn't see potential in an LA Galaxy Development Academy player, it's not like LAFC can then bid on that on that player. Like LA Galaxy has the rights to the player, blah 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 blah. And so, really, the the players are only left with one option, and that is to leave the country and go find opportunity elsewhere, or go to college and and ride out that whatever period that where they can't be talked to or touched, and and then hope that that somebody wants to talk to them again at age twenty two or twenty three is kind of how my understanding of the system works. But basically, in a nutshell, it's very anti-competitive. MLS franchises are not competing with each other for talent, in a nutshell, I guess. Right. Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Well, first of all, uh, nobody's interested in players 22-23. It's just, they're not. Uh, Particularly not at the the top level. I've had examples of good 18 year olds that I've had top division teams say kid looks good. If he was 16, we'd bring him in, but he's 18 and we're not interested. Uh, And I've heard that a lot Uh, and not about just one particular player. So the reality is um, the scenario you're, you're laying out does not work at all for for kids that are 18 19 years old um you can't often you can't make a living in the usl um if you're 18 years old and signing pro um it's a it's a very difficult thing to do you you may not get benefits um health benefits or anything i mean it's just a a system second division and lower here in the united states where a lot has to improve uh, if you go to college, uh, and maybe that's your highest level, and great, maybe you get a college scholarship out of it, and, and you move on. But there are there are players that are put into a position where they don't even try college, and they go get a job, um, you know, just working construction or whatever it might be, um, because they see that their their career is over at eighteen, nineteen years old because the path isn't isn't really defined as or as open as it could be um you're you're 100 right that there are rules within mls that are anti-competitive that they very clearly squash any kind of competition i think it's absolutely stupid to have these these districts or or regions where teams are not allowed to go in um they're not allowed to step on each other's market it's just absolutely foolish. At the end of the day, this is a, a sport about competition. And if you're restricting competition at any level, you're, you're disincentivizing owners to invest. Um, there are still teams in this country that don't have proper 
scouting departments that aren't looking at lower division players regularly to see where the opportunities are. They don't know anything about players even in their own backyard because they just don't have enough wide of a network. And that is allowed to happen because there are rules that prevent you from doing more than what you're already doing. So uh, none of that makes sense for the overall development of players for the U.S. national team. Um, and it's not necessarily MLS's job to develop American players. They need to have the best possible team that they can, they can put on the field and wherever they come from, they come from. But at the same time, you can't have a whole set of rules that prevent a team from being better at it than you are. Um, and maybe following a more European model where you are developing American players and getting them into the first team and getting first team minutes. Eric, I'll admit, I didn't, I didn't expect to talk about all this stuff with you. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I knew, I knew that you, that you were onto this new venture with match IQ. And so I, I anticipated spending most of the time talking about that, but this is, this is awesome, man. Um, the first time I interviewed you, it, I think we talked for like almost an hour and a half. And that was one of my favorite interviews that I've, that I've ever recorded. Yeah, but that's not what you you said on Twitter. You you voted other people. <laughs> <hard>. <laughs> I do remember saying that now. I remember your reaction too. That's funny. Um, I, I want I want to go back to a comment you made earlier about uh, young young players not getting minutes in American soccer or, or in Major League Soccer, and towards the tail end of last MLS season and at the beginning of this MLS season. I got the feeling that there was a a like almost like a campaign to play the kids and you started yeah. to see young American players getting on the field not necessarily a significantly amount of minute or a significant amount of minutes but on the field at least to the point where people were starting to track it and, and Travis Clark um um started to release like this weekly thing of of you know american american teenagers getting minutes at mls and usl level and 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 that number started to to grow and grow and grow and now thinking back about you know the tail end of this mls season and especially with the mls playoffs the teenagers are gone like they're, they're like the teenagers are not getting the kids aren't getting minutes now um the, the, the kids are not playing significant roles, whether that's through injury or, or whatever reason, right? You can you can you know talk about the reasons, but it's just not happening. And so it looked like there was a like this campaign to hey look you know we're doing it, and then all of a sudden right. we're not, and now it's kind of like radio silence on 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 this topic. So I'm glad you brought it up again, and, and I think that people need to start paying a, a close or, or paying closer attention to it. Um, I don't know if it's something that you noticed as well. Obviously, you yeah. No, I, I I don't watch the league close enough to know if there's a trend in in any one direction, particularly after this year. Um, I do know that it's been a problem for a long time, um, and f for me, it really just goes to back to the global model. Uh, the transfer market is an important revenue source in the rest of the world. It is not in the United States, and you can. F there are very few examples, um, so few that I mean, you can't even make an argument that it, it that it really exists. Now, maybe it's getting a little bit, little bit better. 
uh, I'm not sure. And people will point to the big transfers, like the, I forget the kid's name, but the, the player from Vancouver to, to Bayern Munich. Um, you know, those are exceptions. Yeah. So the, those are the exceptions, not the rules. Um, and really, if you look, again, because I spend most of my time working with Bundesliga clubs, if you look at them, they very clearly invest a lot of money developing players and they come from all over the world. They're not just local. Um, and they, they have to push players into the first team. They have to give, they have to push them into the deep end to see if they're going to sink or swim. And that's not always good for the head coach to be put in a situation to have to play a, a particular player, but it's part of the club culture and they know they need to do it. And, everybody including the supporters understands it uh, that just doesn't really exist here in fact there there have been rules or made up rules that don't actually exist people have been told that you couldn't do uh solidarity payments or uh training compensation um and so coaches are going to do whatever it takes in the short term to win the game that's in front of them and if the, the owner and the front office and the, the entire organization aren't recognizing the need to develop your own players, then you're going to have a system like what we have here. And um, again, it's not MLS's job to, to develop American players. But at the end of the day, we've got a national team that's far underperforming where it should what do you can you elaborate a little bit on on the the made up rules or the the non-existent rules that people believe are in place? Well, I, I think in the industry, in the American soccer industry, we were told for fifteen years or more that um, the consent decree in the in the Fraser decision um, between the players' union and MLS prevented training compensation and solidarity payments. I was told that by senior U.S. soccer executives about a particular player that we had signed at the Cosmos, and we had said we were willing to pay training compensation for that player, and U.S. soccer told me it was illegal. Um, and that's simply not true. It never was illegal. It was always smoke and mirrors. Um and I think that that effort to control the market, to keep costs down, has and, and it's gone on for 15 years or more, um, has put us in a development situation that we have now, that we aren't doing a good enough job domestically, and our top players are largely finishing off their development abroad. Um, I think that's a good sign um, that players are finding their way forward but you know we had a kind of a lost generation there that we we simply just didn't have enough depth of positions to perform as well as we could and now that we've got these kids playing in first divisions around europe we need more than one in each position if you look at a, a national team like germany or france or the, the countries that are going to compete for a World Cup, they're four, five, six players deep at each position, and there's serious competition. Right now, we may have one. And over the next five to ten years, to be competitive, we need to, that needs to increase. And I think it's 
more likely that it's we're going to be successful by sending kids to Europe. Oh, I don't know where I want to go after that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had a thought in my head and it escaped. Um, I want to try to get back to, to match IQ because I want to make sure that, that you get a chance to talk about, um, you know, what, what people should be looking for and, and what people can, can do to learn more about it. But what, what, what do people need to know about what you're doing with match IQ specifically and, and where, and yeah, where can they learn more about it? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's early days for us. We're just getting started. Chalk is a good, uh, case study of, of being interested in all things commercial and sporting. Um, some of the clubs we're talking to may skew a little more commercial or, or a little more sporting opportunities. And, and on the sporting side, it might mean friendly matches, uh, training camps, preseason, postseason training camps, things like that. It's, my partners are very good at that. And ultimately, I think what we'll see is more partnerships between MLS teams and some of our, our clients. Um, and that ultimately benefiting some of those MLS teams because uh, my partners are, are very well established throughout Europe. Uh, so getting some MLS teams to Europe to play some matches and to develop some more relationships, I think, is is an important step for us in the future. And we also have an office in China. Um, and as that market opens up and, and Chinese football is, is becoming more important. I think there's, there's more chances to do things in Asia as well. And I, I think more, the more that MLS teams open themselves up globally, the better the league will be. I re, I remember my thought now. So I need, I need to come back to this okay. question. <laughs> do, sure. do the clubs that you're working with in, in Europe are, are they, See, I don't want to ask this in a way that makes it sound negative because, um, you know, do, do they see the potential here as, as kind of like open season? Like, hey, we can take advantage of the American market because of the way that MLS is doing their business. Do they see like opportunity there because MLS is failing to do that? Um, does that make sense? Is that... uh, yeah, I know what you're saying. I haven't heard any clubs uh, put it that way. Okay. Um, I think the way they see it is they need to develop players. It's part of their business model. Got it. It's part of them their competition. And whether those players are coming from Africa or South America or North America, um, they're going to look wherever they think there's opportunity and where they have the time to do it. And again, we don't, we don't have a scouting network, but we do have people that we work with and they send us CVs of players. In fact, um, there's a player going to train with, um, with a German second division club next month. Um, and that was an agent sending me the player's CV. We shared it. The club liked him and they want to take a look at him. And that, you know, that kid's a high school senior and he's got a chance now, a chance that maybe would not have had before. Um, and I think the more we have success with that, um, the better for our clubs and the better for American players with, with more opportunity. I, I was thinking about something exactly like that earlier this morning. I saw that there was a, a like a 17-year-old kid on the bench for Chelsea's U18 um, 
U18 team and I was in my head I'm thinking about how does a a 17 year old kid get on Chelsea's radar right and so there's a couple different ways maybe Chelsea sees him um, playing with a youth national team or maybe Chelsea sees him at a a scouting event but more 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 than likely it's probably the player pursuing opportunities outside of what they've been given here in the United States be it going over and, and, and traveling to a camp in, in the UK or finding an agent or, or, or doing these things themselves. Right. And I can't imagine, uh, a American player sending a CV to like LAFC, for example. Right. And, and, and the attitude that, that it would be received with at LAFC, uh, would probably be very different than, than Europe. And Europe sees this kid as like, hey, like you know, this is an opportunity to sign an American kid for for cheaper or, or free almost. And LAFC would be like, eh, no thanks. That's kind of how I feel about it. I don't know. That was my, my initial yeah. reaction. Yeah, well, yeah, I can't, I can't uh, comment on how MLS teams react to it. I, I, I don't know. Most of the people that come to me um, asking for connections to a particular club. Um, they're looking for that particular club and they're, they're thinking Europe more than they are uh, domestic. And what for some players, MLS is exactly where they should be yep. um, for, for one reason or another. And some clubs are going to be better at um, developing players in those opportunities than others. And, you know, we named Red Bull already as, as one that does it pretty well. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you look at even second division Bundesliga clubs, they're they have a whole network of system of of scouts and and talent evaluators, and all they do all day is watch video, and they're getting leads from all over the country. I mean, all over the world, um, and you know, we just happen to have the credibility with some clubs to make sure that the one or two names we send over every once in a while actually get looked at. Um, we've gotten feedback. We like him. Um, we're going to keep an eye on him. We've gotten feedback that they want to see him right away. And we've gotten feedback that uh, maybe it's, it's a little late for the players. So it all really depends. And to, to be clear, I, I think it happens a whole bunch of different ways. There are, scouts that represent clubs from all over the world that are attending things like the Dallas cup and players are being identified there. And I'm sure there are examples of a player that at 16 uh, really caught someone's eye. Parents didn't have any idea. The kid was at that level, uh, didn't have a, a, an agent at all. Um, And that happens over the next year or two as a kid turns 18 and can get to Europe um, so it does happen in different ways, but you're right. I think the, the most proactive agents and players are the ones that are getting more opportunities. Yeah. It makes me wonder exactly how it went down with Chris Richards. Cause if I remember right, I, I, I interviewed Chris's dad, but, and not to say that, you know, they didn't believe that their son was a, you know, stellar performer, but didn't know necessarily how, how high of a level Chris, yeah, you know, exactly. what, what his ceiling really was. And so from, from, you know, playing just kind of club soccer in Alabama to, 
his acceleration to the Bayern Munich first team with their with their U.S. tour that first year he was with them. Like that's a that happened pretty quickly. Um, so I'd be curious to talk with Chris's dad about that specifically again. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely the case that uh, there are parents and players that don't appreciate um, the level and their potential that that the player has. Of course, you got the other side of it too, where you know the parents and the player think they're the next Messi. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the thing that I've walked away after twelve years or so of focusing on this sport in this country that I think is the most frustrating for me is that the, the truth is a lot of players are dropping out at 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. And they're not all world-class players, but I, I just see the youth development that it, it just kind of peters out. Um, kids just stop playing. And I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. I played football, baseball, basketball, Kids kind of stopped playing those other sports at 14, 15, but the better players kept playing. Um, and what I've seen on the grassroots level um, is that a lot of kids, even really good kids, just stop playing because the, the system isn't there. Um, it's a pay-to-play system, and often the pay-to-play really only focuses on the top 1%. And there are other good players that just stop playing because – there's not the organized structure that that uh, there is in the rest of the world. And I think that hurts in a, in a lot of ways. I absolutely agree. I actually just talked about that on a, on an episode of this podcast with Bobby Papioni, where I, I, my observation has been for quite a while in this area is that as you get older and older and older uh, and, and in club soccer, right? So you go from U13, 14, 15, 16, the best players aren't necessarily progressing. It's just the players that can still afford it a lot of times. Um, yeah. And, and that tends to, and again, this is just my observation. Uh, it, it tends to get wider and wider and wider in, in this area uh, as, as it gets older and older and or older, because you know, the, the older Hispanic kids are, are dropping out of uh, those leagues. Uh, the quality of those, of those teams you know, you would uh, imagine should be getting better and better and better as they reach U16, 17, 18. But in this area, U16, 17, 18 level soccer is the most atrocious soccer you've ever seen in the world. Um, you know, the, the quality is just, it goes down after U15. And, and again, probably yeah. to what, what your point is, is that those kids are starting to drop out at 13, 14, 15. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things with it. Uh, the you know, the younger ages, you can play rec within your club and there's so many teams, so you can actually get games um, or you can do travel as well, because again, there's so many players, but as you get older, it's harder to form a travel team because um, there's just not enough players anymore. Maybe they can't afford it. Um, I know for my daughters, I'm on the board of my daughter's club uh, she's seven years old and we spent a lot of time talking about how we can't keep the older kids playing um, And the structure in this particular town is very strong with lacrosse and they, the boys just choose to, as they get older, choose to play lacrosse because soccer isn't really a viable alternative to them. Certainly not at the level that lacrosse is in this town. So uh, I think that, problem gets repeated all over the country 
uh, and we're simply just not even addressing it. And back to the, the earlier theme, we're disincentivized because so much of it is pay to play and the people that are running pay to play don't necessarily want that to change. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just, it's, it's interesting how everything can kind of tie back into a, a few different points and it all kind of relates to like what you just said, just dis, disincentivized markets and disincentivized individuals, disincentivized clubs, players, everything. Um, it, it's there. If there's no incentive to, to do these things, then why would anybody invest the time or the money to do them? Uh, right. And that's kind of the theme of American soccer. And, and you have the people that have uh, an incentive to continue to do their work because they have a, a monopoly on the market. So of course they're going to continue to work. Right. Uh, and those are the ones that, that are, that are still doing it. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, uh, it's a real shame because there are a lot of kids that need these opportunities to, to get to a different place in life. Um, I can't remember the kid's name. I'll, I'll tell the story, um, and I'm sure that the name will come to you. But the number one draft pick went to Cincinnati um, out of UCLA. It's a kind of a smaller player, plays central midfield. I, I, I don't, I don't have his name in front of me, but um, you know that kid's story is is very, very common, um, and it normally goes the other way. Young uh, player in Southern California. Um, was very close to, to not playing anymore. And I think by pure luck, the coach at UCLA saw him play and he got a scholarship, played one season at UCLA, gets drafted by Cincinnati, and and now he has a chance to have a professional career. But a player like that is very, very close to not being seen by the UCLA coach and not going to UCLA for a year, maybe can't even get into UCLA. Um, and that player of, of that ability and maybe potentially in the right system could be playing for the U S national team ends up doing something else. And, uh, I think that's where we as a country have to get a lot better. And, uh, I, I just don't think we're approaching this, this challenge in the right way. Uh, Frankie Amaya. As a kid, there you go. Yeah, Frank, Frankie, and 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 to to Tab Ramos's credit, um, Tab selects a very different type of roster, or, or traditionally has selected a very different type of roster than most of his other uh, U.S. youth national team counterparts. And so, a player like Frankie fit Tab's vision, and and fit in Tab's team. And I think Tab gave him a chance um, on on one of the one of the rosters, and that triggered a couple eyes to look at him. But yeah, it was the college route that ultimately, you know, that, that Frankie had to go um, in order to continue his playing career because he wasn't getting, right. he wasn't getting looks. Yeah, he was right. with a, he was, he was with a, just a regular old development academy in Southern California, and, and you know that that pathway leads you to either college or to nowhere. So right, right, and and that I think points to the overall flaw in the system. He was good enough to to break out of it. Uh, but I'm sure there's players that have been as good or even better that just never really got the chance. Um, and I do think we often, particularly on the youth level, ignore players of really good technical ability for bigger, more athletic kids. And those decisions 
don't help the process at all. Um, and also, the, I think the officiating is not to take us down another <laughs> rabbit hole, but, you know, I was at my daughter's travel game the other day, and, you know, she's seven years old, so it's a learning opportunity. Like, they f- don't fully understand what a corner is yet. Um, and the referee was just standing in the middle of the field, not moving, not even paying attention. And, you know, those are learning opportunities that the refs should be engaged in, should be coaching almost as much as blowing the whistle. Um, but the officiating I've seen in this league is, has just been horrible, and they can't possibly help with our development. And when I say horrible, I don't mean getting calls wrong, because who really cares about a U8 game? But um, it's just being engaged and being part of the process, I don't think it it is nearly good enough here. Yeah. Somebody asked the other day on, on Twitter, they were surprised that a youth game in, where was it? It must've been somewhere else. Only had one referee and people are so accustomed to American soccer having three referees from the time the kids are eight until, you know, whenever. Um, but the rest of the world, it's, it's one referee. And like you mentioned, the, the referees tend to be very, very engaged in, in the games. And um, especially at that younger level, I, I think in other countries, you know, to a certain point, the coaches are still on the field and, and they're, you know, they have a lot more freedom and leeway to, to, to be, an active member of the of the game until a certain age uh, yeah i mean the the girls struggle to throw the ball in because yeah. they don't fully understand what they're supposed to be doing and, and, or to take a corner kick and and to to that point uh i've watched i can't tell you how many you know european academy games online for, and it took me a while to, to adjust myself to this but what i've realized is that the referees really don't care if you lift your foot on a throw-in like uh, if you're 11 years old, like they really don't care and and they won't call it. It's not that, you know, it's not going to be a game changing play if you lift or if you, if you don't throw the ball in correctly, or if the ball's a little bit uh, rolling a little bit on a restart. So they're not as nitpicky as, as a lot of American yeah. refs tend to be. And, and yeah, well, I, I just saw that same thing. So the, a girl, this is a week ago, uh, the girl didn't totally understand how to do a throw in. He was the ref wasn't explaining it to her. Um, she's standing there confused, and then she threw it in kind of more with one hand than with two, and he called a foul throw. Um, you know, you then she walks away from that having no idea what she did wrong, not understanding the rule at all. Yeah. Um, and it's just another lost opportunity. Just I just don't I, I don't get it, but I, I also think that you know we're not structured in a way to identify these things and, and fix them. I think they just, they just keep happening and have been happening for 30 or more years. Well, the, the entire conversation about, you know, not being incentivized to, to be better also applies to referees. Um, and, and the referees have just as many political battles as, as you know, youth clubs and, and, and whatnot, um, that people don't really, you know, hear about those are kind of like backroom conversations, I guess. Yeah. Um, but well, and it can't be easy. I mean, American parents are crazy and yeah. screaming just, and officials, but yeah, but even, but even, you know, starting at the top too, I know the guys, they just had to restructure their, their contracts with, with 
pro the the um, professional referee organization and they had to nego- renegotiate with major league soccer and and some of those guys are, are are fifa referees and you know that that disqualified them or sorry um that that made them overqualified for uh, certain positions which affected their pay and uh, all kinds of crap right so um but re- referees are are you know part part of the system as well and and I probably should give them more love since I am one. Um, probably talking about uh, some of the issues that they go through as well. So, yeah, maybe we can save that for another day, though. <laughs> uh, where, where can people where can people learn more about Match IQ? Where can people connect with you if they have questions or if they want to follow up with you? So, um, to follow up with me, probably the best way is is Twitter. I'm at. Uh, Eric E R I K Stover S T O V E R N Y C um, on Twitter, and for Match IQ, our website is www.match. M I excuse me M A T C H dot I Q dot com. Um, and if you go to the English language part of that page, you'll see some of the stuff we've been working on. Awesome. All right, man. Well, it was good catching up. Always like, good. I appreciate it, John. Like I said, I didn't I didn't anticipate talking about most of that stuff, but I'm <laughs> I'm super glad we did because that's stuff. It's it's timeless stuff, man. We need to be talking about that as much as possible. All right, it, it's always a pleasure. So thanks for the, thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast. If you are interested in accelerating your development as a coach and learning more about possession-based soccer, you can visit 343coaching.com and sign up for our premium coaching membership program. That is where you will get access to video, audio, and ebook lessons that will help you reduce your trial and error time by showing you the methods that have been proven to work in the American soccer environment. So once again, if you are an ambitious coach and you want to start learning the tried and true methods that have already been proven to work in the American soccer environment, you can visit 343coaching.com to learn more about our coaching programs. Once again, that is 343coaching.com. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast, and we will catch you next time. Next time.